Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined by Sue Wilton and Peter Catt at St. John's Cathedral. As always, thanks for, for making time, guys. Uh, thanks, Dom. Morning, Dom. And uh, we're going to uh, start today's podcast, which is going to be about the, I guess, the search for belonging, the quest for belonging that is at the core of every human journey, um, really. But we're going to start it in a slightly different way, Peter, because I guess today is a, an old friend of yours. So I thought instead of me do the introduction, I might hand over to you to do that. Sure. Thank you. Um, today's guest is uh, John Rolly. Uh, John and I have known each other for 22 years, and we first met when... John was uh, allocated to my parish as a theological student and I've journeyed with John over that uh, 22 years since as he's found himself in the Anglican Church, been forced out of the Anglican Church really and has journeyed through other faith traditions and today finds himself back in a worshipping Anglican congregation and is searching for how one gets that sense of belonging uh, in a tradition where one feels at home but at the same time feels like one is not particularly welcome to be one's true self. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you very much. Um, a pleasure to be here. It is a, a fascinating story. We've just been chatting briefly before we started recording about your story. Um, uh, I guess your, your journey through life to, to this point. If you were, if your book was on a, I guess at a bookshop, what do you, could you think of what the blurb might be? Do you have any idea what the the byline might be, or is it is the narrative clear to you, or is it such a uh, a web to you that the, it would be hard to, to define it that way? I have spent a lot of time reflecting on how my story has evolved and developed, and at one point it is very clear. And it is, as Peter just described, that sense of uh, a journey of belonging, of becoming. Um, on another level, it looks really weedy. And so if you sink down into the daily aspects, which I'm the only person who knows that, I'm the only person who lives at that level, then it is messy from start to now. It looks messy. However, um, as I experienced at one point when I came out, um, the perspective of the spirit that Sophia, uh, our nurturing mother who is with us and weaves around us, and um, her perspective is very, very different. And so there is... From her perspective, I see a lot of grace. Uh, my relationship with my parents, for instance, um, one of the things that stops my very conservative Pentecostal fundamentalist parents turning their back on me is because they say repeatedly, we cannot deny the move of the spirit or of grace in your life. And oddly enough, that's been a bit of a clarion call for me to come back and look through the eyes of Sophia mm. so that I'm not just seeing the weeds uh, in my life. So it, amidst the, the pain and the moments of deep isolation, there is this, f it's not just a thread, thread 
feels too um, too soft. But um, it's it's it is a river of grace, I guess, you know, and because the river doesn't have it, we look at it and we see all these boundaries, but in actual fact, it permeates out and trees draw up the f the, the moisture and it fills all of the surrounding area, and that's what it's been like. Um, however, I live in these two levels, constantly coming in and out of them. Sometimes I'm in the weeds and feel like I'm tangled and, you know, um, and that sense of I've lost the purpose or I've somehow misstepped. Or, and then when I pull back and actually see those moments of grace, I go, yep, it's okay. It's okay. So take us back to, I guess, your, your younger years. When do, yep. you, do you have a moment where you first remember um, being aware of the fact that you were gay? It, it probably would have been around age 12. However, when I reflect back further, um, it was quite early in my life. I didn't understand it at the time, but after I turned, you know, 12, 13, you know, the connections start, you know, and you think, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so there was never really any doubt in your mind? Not really. A lot, um, doubt is one thing. It, Awareness does not equal uh, a life lived in that awareness. Awareness is just one level. We then have to respond to it. Now, life either conforms to that awareness or it actually fights against it. And, and that's a large part of the story of my early years until I came out at the age of 29. In between... You did uh, have a marriage to a woman, yes. um, which uh, naturally did not work out in, in that context. Yep. But uh, before we get to that, I'm just interested in, you know, because we are talking about the search for belonging, which does yep. begin, I suppose, in those teenage yep. years when you, you try to find identity outside yep. of your family group, maybe for, for the yep. first real time. Growing up in a context which, from what you've said, was very conservative, very fundamentalist, yes. and yet also being so certain of your sexuality, yep. must not have been the easiest years. No, um, in fact, they were filled with a lot of self-recrimination. Um, however, running parallel to that, and this is, I think this is where the grace part is, is essential because we lived fully embodied lives. So I am not, I am, I am not a gay man. I am John, who, that's my name that I've been given I am a human being, I am a man, cisgender, identifying man who happens to be gay. Everything else runs deeply and connects deeply and, and that awareness came very early on, but I'll come back to that because uh, I don't want to do a Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole thing. Um, so my experience of growing up was very much fundamentalist, God created the world in seven days. The fall was a literal event. The earth is only 6,800 years old. Um, so the fragility of that heavy constructed theological understanding of how the world works was the cradle in which I, my faith was uh, nurtured. However, and my parents, when I became a, a, an Anglican particularly, 
my parents would go, you know what, when we'd go to when we go to church, which my father was pioneering in a small country town in Queensland, um, as a an as, uh, Assemblies of God pastor, you know, when it came to communion, you know, um, which was a fairly open affair, um, my parents would say, you'd, you'd want to bless the table and bless the everything around you, and everything had to be blessed because everything was holy and. And that was at four years of age. So there was that real sacramental uh, thread running through my life, even from age four and five. Um, I don't know where that came from, but that's actually, that's a core thing to understand about who I am as a person that hasn't changed. Uh, in fact, it's expanded. Um, uh, so that really brittle theological cradle that nurtured my faith um, also um, also had quite a few barbs in it. It was bound together by a bit of barbed wire in some ways, where the, the limitations of where I could push, where my mind could push, was very certain. Um, when I was 13 years of age, uh, my father, who was the minister of an AOG church in New South Wales, one of the women... Uh, was one of our congregants. Uh, her husband came out as gay and left the family home and developed a relationship with another married man from a Pentecostal congregation. Broke two families. Broke two families. Uh, and there was it was messy. So the pastoral theological response from the church which my father was leading was a prayer meeting in this lady's house where... I attended, where Peter was handed over to Satan for testing and for punishment for being a gay man. And so that entered my psyche uh, in ways that has taken years to unpack. And so immediately, having knowing who I was, the awareness of who I was, uh, and hearing that this was the way in which things went for people who thought and felt the way I did. Um, my entire life was actually one of, um, of potential damnation. And so uh, I, going to a very conservative Baptist, Westboro Baptist type school where we learned about Jonathan Edwards and, you know, um, sinners in the hands of an angry God and being held out over the precipice of hell ready to plunge at a moment's notice, um, I constructed a vision of myself which was one of, I'm already in hell. And the only way that I can live this life is through penal servitude to the rest of humanity. That's the only value that I could actually see I had. Because um, to be anything other than that, um, would be unthinkable. Not having my family was unthinkable. Um, and so I had to learn to live in two worlds that were separated by this impermeable barrier. It was, it is dualism to a pathology that, um, which I think in reality all dual dualisms engender this pathology. Um, so there was this one world where I could tuck myself into bed and imagine being uh, with this 
hunky, gorgeous man. Um, and then I'd wake in the morning filled with guilt and self-flagellation and God, you know, I know I am bound for hell, have mercy on me, all this sort of stuff. And, and I'd go through the day again, but this time as a upright, perfect, you know. And so I was the musician at church. I taught Sunday school. I'd already been preaching since the age of 13. And, and everyone saw me as this perfect child that was destined for the church you know even though when you think about it how dysfunctional i must have been and i knew and inside me i knew i thought god who on earth, why on earth would god want me anywhere near the faithful because i'm so wretched and um and so i spent most of my teenage years in quite profound depression um and my father was so busy with everyone else's family um, that I didn't see him. So my life became closed. So I was either at school, either doing stuff around the house or in my bedroom. So I became great friends with the World Book Encyclopedia, which I read from cover to cover multiple times um, and had very little social interaction outside of that. I think social media now has opened up to people, I guess, when they are in yep. those years going through, um, yep. I guess, the sexuality uncertainty, yes. a lot of voices that, that yes. say similar things that give yep. affirmation. Did you have anything back then like that at all? Absolutely nothing. I hadn't. Um, at the age of 17, my sister was involved in a car accident where she had uh, she was thrown out of a car and... Um, the car rolled back on her face because as the car rolled, it threw her out, and then the car came rolled back on a on onto a fractured a jaw, and they suspected that she'd fractured her neck. And so they were, so we were at a church camp as we went twice a year. We had two big church camps every year where the Pentecostal faithful would gather, and we'd bother God for two or three times a day for seven days, and. You know, and I was in, in the middle of it all, of course, you know, being the good Christian boy. And um, and the day it happened, my parents, of course, just disappeared. I was working in the kitchen somewhere. No one bothered to come and tell me or anything. And I remember I walked out of the evening service not knowing whether my sister was alive or dead. And one of the... One of the... Um, the men in the in the congregation came out and just put his arms around me. First time I had felt a man hug me. I can actually still feel it. It is that it had such a profound effect on me. And it was sheer, utter compassion. And... Um, Um, it still affects me when I think about it because I know I felt so untouchable and so un, um, undeserving of that level of attention and love to have this man completely surround me and just hold me. It was earth-shattering. Um, you would think that would unlock something but it actually made me tighten up even further. 
Um, Why do you think that is? Um, I liked it too much. And not, not, not just because it was a guy or... The, the, I wasn't aware of the... Even at 17 years of age, I, wasn't, I hadn't made the connection in the real world around lust. You know, I and you know, I'd I'd had crushes on guys at school and you know friends and things. Not that I had very many, but um, there was something in me that just wanted that all the time, and I knew that that's where I belonged. I belonged in another man's arms, and I knew it, and I knew I couldn't have it. That it wasn't for me. Um, it would mean my death. That's I had equated these two things together so strongly. That if I was to allow myself to uh, enjoy uh, the fullness of life in that experience, it would equate to my death. Um, I, when I finished high school, I um, went to the Philippines for two years, and to study theology. The Church of God, which my father had moved from the Assemblies of God to the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, which, if you believe the press, is the oldest Pentecostal church in the world and still existing in some, 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 some. So anyway, and they had set up a they set up a seminary in the Philippines. The idea of which was everyone from the whole Asia Pacific Oceania area would go there. And so I went there, and it was a great experience. Um, I was homesick, and um, and that's when. A whole lot of other stuff from my early childhood came out, uh, which then made it even more confusing. So at the age of four and a half, I was sexually assaulted for uh, about 12 months by uh, the, a teenage son, a boy of my father's boss. We lived in central Queensland in a, um, in a compound. My father was a paramedic. And so the super, district superintendent and the paramedic lived in the same property. Uh, much like the cathedral here. So, um, and I hadn't said a word to anyone. And so that thread itself was woven through because I'd already, I was already damaged to start with. Coming out then added the emphasis, the fact that really I was, I was actually so worthless um, as, a, as a human being. Um, and then the fear that somehow that experience made me think about being with guys and so therefore you know, I was doubly damned, you know, from a small age. So when I was in the Philippines, that's when all that came out, you know, and I went through experiences where, um, oh, I dreamt my parents were dead. I was completely asexual. I didn't feel a thing for about three to six months, not a thing. Um, so completely disassociative as a result of that. But one of the commitments I made was that I would never shun the opportunity to grow as a person. Uh, still believing somehow that that growth meant that my whole purpose in life was to actually serve the rest of humanity uh, because I wasn't worthy to experience life. So at the age of 21, I came back to Australia quite unwell. Um, I then took up a position as a minister, deacon, in a church in Adelaide uh, with the denomination and lived that way for 18 months and while I was in seminary I was struggling with the whole notion 
theological basis for for Pentecostal denominations. Um, theology, you know, I I started questioning it. I started questioning, you know, the um, its approach to sacraments and all these sort of things because this thread is still continuing. It's, there's no dis- disconnection from any of that. So, and that was the beginning of the end in terms of. Um, that's when things were unraveling to a certain extent. Is this around the time that Peter Cat enters your life or are we a bit far off from that still? Uh, we're still a little bit far off. Um, so I'd moved to Adelaide. Um, I had uh, was a card-carrying Pentecostal with everything that, uh, uh, that goes with that, all of the phenomena and what have you. And however, I would still, when I was responsible for taking the communion service so um, would become quite traditional uh, but sacramental and which used to make people kind of but it was just there's always been that push inside me for a more embodied sense of you know embodied sense of experiencing God and Christ or God or Christ God through Christ and um and so I preached a sermon, which was the undoing of my ministry, where I said, um, the phenomena that we experience is not, one, there is no basis in Scripture for such a, an emphasis, on emphasis, emphasis on it, and that, you know, we are really called more to being Christ, not just experiencing the phenomena associated with one aspect of um, Trinitarian life. And that got me sacked in a splendid fashion. Um, and because uh, I questioned the theology and because I and actually didn't, I no longer believed it. I didn't, it didn't, made no sense to me. That must have been terrifying though, because this has been from what you've mentioned, the, the place of belonging, even you know, at yep. great cost to your, yourself. Yep. This had been where you'd belonged yep. for some time. So to yes. lose that must have been it. It actually sweet, at least. It actually underscored my sense that I actually wasn't deserving, and I left there and and said, and this is where nursing comes into it. I left there and and said, right, okay, God, I'm obviously I am the spiritual failure that I've always felt I am. What can I do that could even remotely resemble pastoral care and ministry? And and I went to a Baptist, a charismatic Baptist church for a while, um, and met a director of nursing for a nursing home. That's where I got into nursing. I still thought I really this is not my reality in terms of theologically. Um, and then an acquaintance of mine said, "Why don't you come to St Matthew's Kensington?" And so I went along to this service, uh, Eucharist, and I sat there and was, I was bowled over by the peace of God and the presence of God in ways that I'd never experienced in all of the, all of the whirlwind of Pentecostal charismatic life, um, and I was immediately taken to Elijah, to the, the experience of Elijah, you know. Um, where it, it wasn't in the the noise, it wasn't in the earthquakes and all of the phenomena that, that, you know, we should be going, oh my God, wow, that's really... It was in the still small voice and I just sat there and cried through the Eucharist. 
And I thought, this is where I belong. It made perfect sense to me. Um, I, I started my first year at Flinders University as, as a nurse. I met a guy called David, who was the first time, first person in my life that I'd said that I was gay. And um, I was heavily involved in uh, in the church at, in Adelaide, and that then started this existential angst of not belonging but wanting to belong, desperately wanting to fully immerse myself in the life of the church. And um, I started coming out, painful, slow process. Um, went home to visit my parents. What age is this? I was 23, 24. Um, went home to visit my parents. My mother sat me down and said, if you pursue this life, we won't call it for what it is, let's just say this lifestyle then we'll have nothing to do with you so the threat of being cut off from the family and that it was literally like someone smacked me up the side of the head i went back to adelaide i said goodbye to all my uh, gay friends i um, applied to move back to sydney and um, so i could finish my degree at university of western sydney macarthur Went back home to live with mum and dad so I could be a good boy. And um, cut or shut it all down, just completely shut it all down in the most self-violent way I could possibly think. You know, just isolation, just back in. You know. And But within three weeks of arriving back in Sydney and starting at the University of Western Sydney, I met this guy and fell in love. Um, Unrequited, it was this, you know, uh, it was so limbic. The whole thing was. I. It took me twelve months to get up the nerve to actually say, whose name was also John. I said, John, I'm. I think I'm in love with you, and just silence, no recognition whatsoever. And I went, holy, insert, your own, chosen word. Um, fell into a deep depression. And decided that all of this experience of life was not working. And I literally felt I'd been pushed into a corner. I can't be out. I can't be straight. I can't be this good boy. I can't be not a good boy. And so I thought, I was sitting literally in a pub in Camden, having a Guinness. And staring into the fire and went, you know what, this is all this is so simple. That's what I need to do. And I decided right there and then that the following Thursday night would be my last on earth. And made that decision. Everything felt right where it should be. Perfect. And thought, that's it. Done. I can be... I can be out of my parents' life. They can get on with their life. They don't have a, they have a faggot son. Um, I don't have to fall in love with these people that I can never be with. Um, and after all, I'm such a screw-up. One more person won't bother God a great deal. Because after all, I was damned at going to hell. So I might as well go there now rather than wait an extra few years. And, um, and so I made that decision and 
spent the next week in euphoria um which is in terms of men who decide to kill themselves it is that state that should alarm us all when we see guys all of a sudden everything's fine it's actually it's profoundly not fine um, and one of the academics that well, I decided to go on the last day Thursday I decided I will go to uni it's one of the places that I felt the most at home and I'll say you know not goodbye but you know the last hurrah and then my parents were going to be away that night so just off it went so walking down the corridor one of my, one of the academics saw me she literally her eyes just bulged open I don't know what she saw but she said you need to come into my office now she put herself between the door and me and said whatever it is you're thinking to do to yourself I was very brave she said it's not worth it and I was then dutifully marched around to the, to the psychologist's office and who then asked me, John, why can't you just be gay? And I just, I looked at her and I said, there is no way on this planet that I can be gay. It would be the end of who I am. Um, and it was from that moment, I packed it all back away again. Just shoved it all back again. Met my then wife literally two months later and thought, finally, I've been through all this. This is my dark night. I've been through this dark place and now God has heard my cry. And there's finally someone who I'm even modicumly attracted to. <sighs> Here we go. And so, and that was, it was sheer bloody relief that I had even the slightest bit of attraction to this woman. Um, in hindsight, we should have just stayed good friends and we probably would still be today if that was the case. Um, and then... I finished my degree, I moved to Newcastle where Meredith was living and um, uh, we got married the that year in 95, and 29th of July 95 and um, the conversation around vocation came up again so I started exploring with the Diocese of Newcastle around uh, priesthood. I was going to an evangelical parish, moderate evangelical parish. Um, but still conservative enough to, we don't, the cathedral is referred to as camp on the hill. So the parish priest left, left, um, left no doubts in my mind that it was, you know, if you go up to the cathedral, because mm, I'd actually come out to the priest before, when we first started the preparation for marriage, I actually said I was a gay man. And he said, don't worry, you've never had sex with anyone, 27 years of age, never had sex with anyone, so all you need is a good woman. And Meredith is a good woman, so God has indeed answered your prayers, just get on with it and you'll be fine. And your wife knew as well? I came out to her the day we started dating. And for her, she didn't see it as a problem. Um... So that, and uh, I was then, uh, I went to a uh, selection conference um, in the Diocese of Newcastle and was selected. It was at that, that point in the, I think it was January of 97 that I met Peter. Um, I was first assigned for about 
two and a half seconds to the local priest in Morpeth, um, which um, I was then removed quickly because he was having a vocational crisis. So, um, um, which was ended up being a, a great thing because the Beresfield Parish was a brilliant place of, you know, um, of churches, community, and theology in action and conversation. Because one of the first things you asked me, I remember sitting in the lounge room of my stable-esque um, uh, uh, lodgings at, at uh, Morpeth was, uh, what is it you want to gain out of this uh, relationship? And my first thing was, if I never preach another sermon again or never hear another sermon again, it'll be too soon. And he said, well, I shall endeavor to change your mind. And I, went, uh, I mumbled to myself, fat chance. But anyway, I was pleasantly surprised so you you're at the this place with peter and i imagine was this was this your first i suppose dealing with uh maybe a a, a theology that had more room to fit the parts of you in that maybe absolutely you beforehand no absolutely so when i went to morpeth and started studied at st john's it was for me it was like someone gave me permission to approach the table uh, a, a, a table laden with so many wonderful new ways of thinking and um, different ways of being uh, uh, church in community. Um, and we had a, a fantastic uh, warden, Mother Anne McGillicott, who, um, uh, and pray for us, um, who's no longer with us. So between uh, Father Peter and her, uh, that became the new cradle that I could actually then emerge from. So, and I loved, I, I absolutely mourned leaving St. John's. That was the only place of real deep nurture that I'd really experienced and loved it, even though the experience of it was actually quite painful. I came out because I had developed affection for a particular male candidate. And uh, I remember... And we become very good friends, and nothing had happened between us because I was, given my who I was, I was married, and so therefore there was no question of anything ever happening. I went along to spiritual direction, and Father Bruce Hoare was the archdeacon, was our spiritual director, and I sat down and I said, I said, what is it that you really need to focus on? And I said, well, I've got this relationship with this person, uh, this friendship, and I don't know what to do with it. And I really could deal, really get some advice from you. And he said to me, he said, John, if you do not come out as a gay man, I will ensure you are never ordained. And I went, okay. The angst that I felt in that moment, because I'd... People had only ever asked me, John, what would it be like if you were gay? No one had actually put me in a corner and said, if you don't. And because I immediate flash through my mind is, God, what will Meredith say? And he said, look, he said, we're in Holy Week. And he said, you are walking towards your crucifixion. And he said, it's one that you cannot, the cup cannot pass from you. Not this time. And, but he said, there is always resurrection. He said, that is, that is not a hope. That's a, that's, that's a real reality. There will be resurrection. I felt like, oh, it's easy for you to say. So I went and found this person and I spoke to them and said, this is what I'm going to do. Well, that was the beginning of the end of that 
relationship because he was also married and me coming out and actually pursuing that as a matter of integrity even though I hadn't lived with much integrity to that point um, the cost was too high so you know, he and I rarely ever spoke again but probably what kept me sane was um, the relationship I had with Peter I was actually going to ask Peter what your memories of John back then were. I thought that might be interesting to it, to see what your perspective on all of this yes, was. Because I'm sure I've formed quite a bit of mythology around this whole experience. Um, well, um, the the beautiful thing about John was that he was craving to exercise integrity in a context that kept on inviting him or demanding that he not be integrated. And... Um, you know, I I had twigged very early on that John was gay and was incredibly surprised to find that he was married to a woman, and that actually made me uh, doubt my gaydar. I thought, <laughs> I thought, oh well, you you can't make these suppositions all the time. Um, and so when after that retreat, John came and talked to me about what he had resolved to do as a result of that retreat mm. um he he really was at that point set free to engage in a life of integrity and you know, in the last 22 years that's been what's uh, led him and guided him and caused him to have such uh mixed relationship with the church mm. is that he wants to be himself integral, like God is. You know, God is one. Yes. And therefore, we are called to be whole and one, not bifurcated, not divided. And that's the thing I really honour about John and his journey is he's always, you know, since discovering that he could be an integrated person, that he was allowed to be an integrated person, and that God wanted him to be an integrated person which is i think the thing he discovered at that combination of st john's and through the community at beresfield he's held on to that sense of self hmm. but you did leave the anglican church after that yes um i did uh some context was that 1997 in the diocese of newcastle um, Peter, as the area dean, um, proposed to the church in Newcastle that we have a year of listening for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people, um, which was met with mixed. And it you became well, it became the year of shouting. Um, um, the diocese in response to the motion that was passed overwhelmingly by the Synod to have the year of listing was basically destroyed by a small group of people who made sure that they were present at every regional gathering and attacked the people who spoke. Mm. Mm. So it was a year of the year of the shouty right. I remember sitting in that synod when Peter spoke and the way people were talking about gay and lesbian people I just shook my head and went they're talking about someone on the planet Zork you know I looked around and going you're sleeping you're sleeping with her she is sleeping with her 
he is has a live-in partner him and him i know have gotten together a few times and he's been down the port having sex with boys he and i was going around the room and it was just and and i thought it was in that moment i thought the duplicity of this institution is stifling i literally felt someone had me by the throat and and i thought i, I cannot allow myself to become yet another silenced victim uh, in the church's need for seemliness, not theological correctness or right scriptural uh, interpretation. It was just its seemliness, and which is which is violent. It's a, it's a form of violence um, that causes everyone to be drawn into the duplicity, even if they don't want to. And that's the thing. Most people don't want it. You know, they want the opportunity to be open and honest and have critical conversations because the people of God are actually not stupid. The people of God are intelligent and can have open, honest communication if it's facilitated without an agenda. But unfortunately, for me, it was that sinking feeling of there is no place here for integrity. And I've only just found this. I'm not about to let it go. That's where the grief of what it was that I was experiencing in terms of vocation and uh, place um, really was. Because by that stage, I was in love with Anglicanism, not because it's a great institution. I, Richard Holloway visited uh, St. John's that year. And one of the things he said is, is he was talking about his experience with the church. And, and he said, the church is a whore, but she's my mother and I love her. That made sense. Immediately I thought, you know what, the institution is actually what is the problem. But yet at the same time, we, we're in love with this institution and the people that make it what it is. Um, and I thought, I'm not sure this is going to end very well. And so um, when it got out that I'd come out, I was, I would, I was approached by all sorts of... Uh, people beautiful people um priests um father brett ward for instance um is a is a gorgeous man and a deeply spiritual man um and he was he was very compassionate um i was approached by a couple of other priests that were more predatory than pastoral there was one situation where i had to flee in order to main, keep my integrity because I, I was there for pastoral care and what I ended up was a conversation of what he wanted to do to my um, genitals. And so I just took off. I just ran. And um, I'd taken shelter with the Greek teacher, a Uniting Church minister, Jan Huggett, who if um, Peter is, was very much a father of the heart, then Jan is very much mother of heart because my parents couldn't be there at that stage when I came out. Um, because I knew that there had to be that distance and there was it was painful for quite a while um, so it was in that moment uh, and so between Peter and and Jan I landed somewhere fairly safe but the church was actually very unsafe um, both in terms of I had priests coming and telling me just stay married married to Meredith she can take her lovers you can take yours 
And that was actually a common theme that came through. And I knew in that moment that that was it, that that actually defined um, for me where my path would have to go. Um, I didn't know at that stage I had didn't have enough theological formation in terms of what it was to be queer and um, Christian, let alone queer man with a vocation. And so my capacity to be able to argue back was limited. Um, but that was essentially that was essentially the end. I knew that the door was slammed shut. And 20 years on, we've seen drastic social change. Um, yep. Most countries, or most Western countries at least, have passed same-sex marriage. Yep. Um, now the conversation is beginning to happen in churches as well. It's yep. come a long way in 20 years. Yes. And you have just recently returned to the Anglican Church. Are those two things linked? Do you think no. that they're not linked at all? No. Why the return to the Anglican Church? Uh, in that, in those, in those 20 years, um, I had that feeling that of these two worlds that I had created, this dualistic experience, were crashing together. Literally, it was like two, you know, black holes, you know. And so I was starting to, had to live through the experience of what it meant to be a whole person, that I could actually be in my, in my full incarnatedness, erotically attracted to men, and also in that in the same in the in that same energy that same sense of being also be able to call people around the table in the word the two could not be divided but when i actually when i was going through that sense of that, those early years of integration of who it was and letting go of a lot of that self-hatred that had been come a principal part of who i saw myself as i started to get it I started to get that sense that um, God didn't call us to live embodied lives in separate compartments. It's like we've got to undo the very thing that God actually did in creation and recreation. And I'll reveal something in a little bit that I've been toying whether I will or won't, because um, some people may be scandalized. But and the first, I'll, I'll, I'll do it now, actually. The first lesson that I had around that was probably two weeks after Holy Week, after I came out, Mother Anne McGillicott um, saw that I was struggling. And she said, it's time for a silent retreat for you. She said, I've arranged for it. All you need to do is catch the train. Someone will pick you up and take you to St. Mary's Towers in um, Douglas Park. And she said, I want you to experience just being silent and being cared for in that spiritual space because I was I was deeply spiritually sick and so when I got there there was a little note sitting on the bed saying who my spiritual director was and I went great it's a nun and so the first session Sister Carmel who is one of the most beautiful women and she said so John just tell me about yourself Oh, I'm this horrible gay. I've come out as gay, and I'm. It's my life is over, and my vocation is smashed, and and you know I'm I'm a horrible person, and no one, God, won't want me anymore. And and she's just sitting back very quietly, and she then told me a bit of a story, and and she there was no judgment, and I was going, hang on, you should be disgusted by me, 
and she said we're going to we're going to see what you look how you feel about yourself at the end of these seven days okay <laughs> sobbing she said we're going to use this indignation uh, approach to prayer where you'll pray the scriptures first passage was blind bartimaeus jesus healing blind bartimaeus Bartimaeus, who was, happened to be blind. Uh, why we label people like this, I have no idea. They're not embodied blind. They just It's a condition that they have. So anyway, so Jesus heals Bartimaeus. And then in, this, in, the, in the gospel it says, and he turned and entered a house. Okay, right, fine. So we pray our way through that. And then, so by the time I got to about two or three hours of this agonizing experience, um, I had this, in meditation, I had this experience of Jesus turning to me and saying, let's go in and I said Lord you can't come in here this is an unfit place for you um, and we walked through the door and there was a stench of death and human filth and and I immediately there was a sense in this in this whatever you call it meditation vision whatever that I was I retreated into a corner where I couldn't be seen um, and the sense of shame and um, hopelessness uh, was overwhelming. And then, as part of the vision, I feel Jesus drawing me into this hug and this dance and said, now I want you to see the way I see it. And all of a sudden, the room transformed into this beautiful, very sparsely, but warm and a fire and the windows were open and it was fresh and it was clean and I was like Ugh. that night I had a dream and in that dream I had what can only be described as a deeply erotic experience with Jesus I woke up in horror absolute horror that so this explains why I am so disgusting and so reproachful and so dirty because I've contaminated, I, you know, had lust for Jesus. How am I going to tell Sister Carmel? Because she'll want to know. A nun, for God's sake. So I went the next morning <laughs> and, and, I, and I told her the nice sanitized version of, you know, my experience with, blind, with Bartimaeus, who had been healed and all that sort of stuff in the room, in the dance. I thought, oh, that's probably enough. She said, has anything else happened? <laughs> and, oh, and I just sat there and I thought, oh, oh I, I'm, I'm like George Washington and the cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie. And I said, well, I had this experience. I said, you are really going to hate me after this. And so I explained what had happened. And she squealed with delight. And she said, John, you've, this is an experience of love mysticism. This is what the, the great Christian mystics talk about with this immensely spiritual in the darkness in the depths of their darkness you're experiencing the love of christ in this transformative embodied way and i sat back and i went ah oh, really so i'm not dirty or she said no she said it's a blessed moment she said this is brilliant um that then set me up when i had to later in the week the last passage was the Via della Rosa, the following Jesus um, through to crucifixion, and outpoured all of this grief because here was my lover, my beloved, being uh, violently torn from me, and I, I, in the foot of the cross, I was just 
heaving and saying, oh, this is so, so wrong. Why? I, some of it was for myself, this whole thing of yet again, I'm left alone. Um, and the rest of it was this deep sense of my love is being destroyed. And for what? You know, because people will always be violent. You know, that, that sense of injustice and probably the most profound week, spiritual week of my life was that week. Um, and it became a point of reference for me. And regardless of how separate, how isolated I've felt over those 22 years, um, the presence of Christ as my lover, um, the one who fully understands who I am and never abandons who I am, um, has been with me. Uh, I was ordained in 2001 as a deacon on St. Mary Magdalene's Feast of St. Mary Magdalene, which I thought was quite, <coughs> quite apt. And I was priested on Christ the King. That was in a ecumenical Catholic church. It was in the ecumenical Catholic church, which is an independent Catholic jurisdiction. Um, quite conservative, as it would turn out, except for matters of sexuality. And so on. Um, I then worked, uh, my first role as a curate was managing a home for mentally ill homeless men, which we commissioned and set up as part of the ministry of the church. Um, and, uh, and then went on and did some uh, mission parish work and uh, lived in a an ecumenical Franciscan community for 12 months. Uh, um, and yet always that call back to live within or experience life as an Anglican was there. And it was around, it was around that time when I woke up from a dream and I called Father Peter the next day actually. I was struggling with what does this all mean and um, who am I and who is who is this person whom I love? Who is this Christ? I, I have no point of reference anymore. I don't really know how to construct any of this anymore. And I had a dream that I was standing in front of this beautiful, huge icon of Christ Pantocrata, which is an icon that's associated with the Feast of Christ the King and that particular, you know, um, and, and I remember in the dream going, this is so beautiful. And then it started retreating from me. And it just slowly disappeared and there was nothing but blackness and a sense of absolute desolation that woke me up immediately. And I literally thought I was about to die. The intense feeling of, I am now utterly alone. I didn't know what to do with it, where to take it. So I called Peter, similar response to the nun. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that was a very good find for you, but you know. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, Father Peter once said to me, oh, you should, you should stay in the church and work from within. And I flashed in anger at him and said, don't make me one of your projects. <laughs> I'm living this in person. I am not the object. Yes. I am the subject of all of this. 
And yes. anyway, yeah. <laughs> something that I've regretted since saying, but at the same time, it was that. Oh, it was a good yeah, thing. It was a brilliant, brilliant thing to say. <laughs> Absolutely. And I wish I could have done it. I wish mm. I could have had the strength to do it. Um, I've I've been there and been, but I had so much to work through because I didn't have a strong enough sense of self um, to actually draw on those resources. I had to actually literally come away and sp- and spend time working out what it meant to be John. Um, the Anglican Church wasn't able to do that. Um, and really no one else was able to do that. I had to do that. Oh, look, reflecting on the journey, and, and thank you so much for being so vulnerable. I imagine it's a difficult thing to, to go through some of this, <laughs> these stages of your, your journey. But reflecting on it, do you feel a sense of anger that things in, whether it's people or things in the world or um, perhaps corrupt versions of religion kept you from the integral version of yourself for so long? Um, once upon a time, yes. Uh, now, no. Rage would be the term I'd use. I remember the couple of times I'd go and try to go back to an Anglican church. I'd sit there and I'd just hear it and I'd think... I can't, I can't do this. I can't breathe. All I could see was I had gone through what I'd gone through. The church hadn't changed an iota. There is, there is not a skerrick of remorse of what happens to people who are not these cookie-cutter version of what conservatism, conservative religion would try and make us all fit into. You know, it's, it's, this, it's this weird platonic nonsense around... There is this ideal Christian, this pure form that has to exist in order for validity. And it's not, we're not, where there isn't a single person on, on the planet who could conform to any of those images. But that, they don't have to, you know. Just a cursory read of the Gospels shows Jesus was a xenophile. He just loved difference. You know, he would... You know, sitting at the well with a Samaritan woman. How does anyone go past that part of the Gospels without going, Oh my God, my cosmology is so wrong. Jesus sat in a place of intimacy where he was almost entering into her sin by sitting there by himself with this woman who was known to be who she was. Jesus, as Rowan Williams says, you know, baptism is actually to bring us into the chaos that Jesus exists in, not not the unwashed, not the, the sinful out there. Jesus sits in the chaos and the beautiful mess that is humanity. And that's where we're called to, not to escape and hide behind the church walls, but to actually be in the mess with the people of God. That's where God's grace is found, not in some ridiculous ideal of purity. Because it's it's a flagrant misuse of the gospel. Yeah, I, I've been sitting here just in awe of the story, and um, and and you're, you're saying so many things that are conversations I think people are wanting to have and not feeling that they're allowed to have. Mm. You know, you're opening up so much there um, that that we need to be able to talk about if mm. if we're going to be together. You know, there's a few few threads here that I just wanted to pick mm. up on. Um, one is the sacramental thread that was yep. there right from the start, you know, and I think the the two things from you that go together are the integrity and the sacramental nature of the church. Yep. I think that's a natural pairing. Yep. And the problem is when the church gets sick, 
is when they try to have a sacramental worship or a sacramental practice and yet don't live with integrity because yes. they're actually not seeing the sacramental nature of the whole world, of the That's material right. being. And yeah. so that what you're describing in, um, I think it, it was when you were talking ab about, you know, the, all, all those clergy with their little secret lives and things going on and the people coming along and objecting when you were having the, the time of the year of listening um, to issues on sexuality and they have their secret stuff. They're, they're coming in to their altar on Sunday and having a sacramental practice where they are honouring honoring, um, Christ in the bread and the wine and yet not honouring Christ in one another and not honouring right. Christ in the whole earth. And you cannot live with integrity where you're not seeing the sacramental nature of everything. Correct. And Christ present and a, mm. a Christ-bathed universe. So, that's right. You know, uh, that's that connection I'm seeing with, with your story mm. constantly, this image yep. of integrity. And I always mm. find part of my story is is um i mean i have so many resonance with many parts of your story um but also in listening to people the most earnest the most committed people in the church are the ones the church drives out yes and i think what a horror that is and i've seen it again and again mm. that people who go wholeheartedly wholeheartedly mm. into following their faith are often the ones that feel they mm. cannot stay Yep. Um, because of that integrity issue, yes. because they understand that. And the, the sense of isolation that comes with actually finding true belonging. And that's why we're looking for this lovely quote from Maya Angelou. Um, and she talks about that, you know, belonging, true belonging actually doesn't come from conforming in no, any way. Absolutely. We think it does. So we keep <coughs> trying to conform and trying to fit in. Yep. Um, but that's not actually where it can be found. Um, and Maya Angelou has this lovely quote that she says, you only are free when you realise you belong no place. You belong every place, which is no place at all. The price is high. The reward is great. Now, that quote to me... You know, really sings of what you're describing your whole journey is actually mm. you've you've chosen it and times when you were really alone in order to belong you had to be really alone because conforming to what people were telling you to do would have been the wrong yes. thing um and it would dishonor your sacramental sense of yep. life and, exactly. God and and the whole world and so you you had to be alone yes. and yet then when you follow that path of being alone that's when you actually find that you do belong you belong everywhere yes mm. and so I can now sit in a beautiful, broken um, parish community that I call home and think, oh, liturgically, this is dreadful. And there's so much happening around me that is, you know, I think I would, you know, part of me would go, I, would, I wouldn't do that. I'll do that. I'll do this very differently. I'll gather this community very differently. And, you know, and I think to myself, you know what? I actually don't care. Because it doesn't matter what I think or do, Christ is going to be there anyway. Sure, we could have conversations around access. Good liturgy provides open access to the presence of Christ. Christ still comes. Two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. However, people need to develop that. It, it, it's a, formation is something, is a word that we don't use anymore. And I think we should all mourn its loss because you can't teach this stuff you can only form it and you can only form it through experience and through modeling and being and so i may never be ordained as an anglican priest um and possibly after this podcast never um <laughs> uh, even though that would be the ultimate way i could be who i am i'm resigned to the fact that that's if that happens it happens and if it doesn't it doesn't 
but what I can do is just be myself. Um, and that's what I'm intending to try and be in the midst of all of this mess. Because unlike the rest of society, church, the church, the Anglican church in particular in this country, is actually pulling back towards the conservative and the safe. And bravery and openness and integrity around these things is not apostasy. They're afraid it's apostasy. And it isn't. In actual fact, it is entering more deeply. Now, um, Peter, do you have a copy of the prayer book? If you don't, <laughs> there is a problem. Houston, we have a problem. The dean doesn't have a, a copy of the prayer book. Okay, there is a prayer that I read when I was in college. It's, it's an alternative prayer for Easter 7. And it struck me uh, profoundly, and I revisit it every chance I get. Okay, it's the seventh Sunday of Easter. O God, you withdraw from our sight, that you may be made known by our love. Help us to enter the cloud where you are hidden and to surrender all our certainty to the darkness of faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much, John, for um, not just being on the podcast, but um, sharing so vulnerably. It's been a a real honour. Thank you. Uh, We will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.